Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. I'm Matthew Taylor. I'm Chief Executive of the RSA. Uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here for this evening's special event. Uh, I'm pleased to step in for the Chair of the RSA Board, Tim Isles, who sadly cannot join us tonight, but I know he's determined to be here for next year's RDI address. Tonight's event is a celebration of the positive impact of design and the influential practitioners who are leaders in the field. Design is absolutely at the core of the RSA's charitable objects, and the past year has marked other new milestones for our work. We launched, for example, the Make Fashion Circular program in partnership with Ellen MacArthur Foundation with the aim of engaging the design community in transforming the fashion system using circular economy principles. Make Fashion Circular is a featured project brief in this year's RSA Student Design Awards competition, the subject of the animation brief, and is also a project in our Pupil Design Awards competition for secondary school students. Also, we are now entering production for the third series of BBC Radio 4's The Fix, where teams apply service design methods to address complex social problems. This year, we're looking at the issue of debt in the London Borough of Barking and Dagenham. This year, we hosted the exciting Third Age of Light, virtual reality experience created by Mark Major's design studio Spears and Major, the experience examined lighting in the public realm in relation to social attitudes and emerging technologies. We introduced RDI signature exhibitions in the Dr. Cross Room, part of our new development here, showcasing the work of two of last year's new RDIs, Marion Ducars and Ez Devlin. And of course, tonight we inaugurate six new royal designers for industry and one new honorary royal designer for industry. Established in 1936, the year before I started as chief executive. <laughs> I'm just making sure you're paying attention. Yes, maybe. Um, the title RDI signifies the important contribution of design in manufacturing and industry. RDI remains the highest accolade for designers in the UK and today is awarded to those who've shown sustained designed excellence and significant benefit to society. In addition to celebrating the RDIs tonight, we are pleased to acknowledge the next generation of designers committed to using their skills to tackle societal challenges. We've invited some of this year's RSA Student Design Award winners to join us this evening. Now in its 96th year, one year older than me, the RSA Student Design Awards is a global curriculum and competition for university students and recent graduates. Each year, the RSA works closely with a range of cross-section partners, this year including Legal and General, the National Innovation Centre for Ageing, Philips, and Network Rail, to create a set of design briefs that challenge emerging changemakers to address complex problems through design thinking. How might, we, how might we use design to improve the sustainability of the fashion industry or to address the record high number of displaced individuals or to enable economic security for households? These are just a few of the challenges posed by the nine design briefs in this year's competition. 
And so the RSA works with colleges and universities across the UK and around the world to embed the RSA briefs in their curricula. Many students who pass through this program go on to use their skills to transform the world we live in. Indeed, some have the honour, ultimately, of becoming a royal designer for industry. So I'm delighted to have... Uh, we are delighted to have three recent winners here with us tonight, and it's my great pleasure to briefly share their winning work with you. Lucy Davidson from Kingston University won an award for the brief Citizens as Shapers, which asked students to design a solution that harnesses digital tools to increase the quantity and quality of citizen participation in democratic processes. Boy is a service that utilises increasing levels of internet and smartphone usage amongst homeless people, connecting them with politicians and the UK Parliament via forums and a reformed voting system designed for those with no fixed address. The judging panel was extremely impressed by Lucy's solution, which embedded a systemic approach to a complex and sensitive issue. She undertook in-depth design research and created a solution that tackles multiple aspects of the problem, providing a platform to a large yet underrepresented group of citizens. Next, Sarah Alba won the brief Beyond the Kitchen Table, which asked students to develop an inclusive kitchen product or spatial solution that enables people of diverse ages and needs to prepare and eat food, entertain, engage in hobbies, or work and enjoy life together. Touchpoint is a plate and bowl designed for people with ADHD to direct their focus onto the food they're eating through tactile stimuli. Touchpoint creates comfort and confidence to eat in company and helps prevent eating disorders. The judging panel were very impressed by Sarah's detailed research and excellent presentation skills. They commented that with Touchpoint, Sarah has designed a lifestyle-changing way of eating. The final winner who's here with us tonight won our special Living and Dying Well animation brief. The short audio clip explores why talking about illness and planning for death is important for people affected by serious health conditions. Emma McKell from Arts University Bournemouth won this brief for her animation Passing Conversations to accompany an excerpt narrated by broadcaster Michael Burke. Emma made it easy for us to relate to her well-chosen characters with a universal appeal and the ability to speak to people of all ages. I hope you'll enjoy watching it now. The prospect of dying from a serious illness can be scary. But what is it that's most scary? For some people, it's about what death means and what they believe happens afterwards or what they imagine the process of dying to be like. For others, what matters most is the prospect of losing control as they become more unwell. Sometimes, when people are ill, their loved ones avoid the subject for fear of upsetting them. That can make it all even more scary and lonely. There are ways to make things a little better. Voicing fears and concerns aloud can provide a sense of relief. Planning for the future and thinking and talking about a time when you're going to be less well, including when you're dying, means that your hopes and views can guide decisions about your treatment, care and support. Those who love and care for you will be more reassured that they know what matters to you instead of having to guess. If you can talk, you can take more control over what's happening to your health and your life. Thank <laughs> you.
I'd like to ask all of the RSA Student Design Award winners to be upstanding and please join me in congratulating them. We hope to see you back here in a few years' time to get your RDI recognition. Um, the talented young designers will be around with their winning projects in the Dr. Cross room in Rothmells after this event, and I would encourage you to speak with them about what they gain from working on these projects. I've judged a number of awards over the years, and one of the most satisfying things is the way that students are so excited by working on social challenges, using the skills they develop to work on the kind of social challenges that we set them. <coughs> Following the RDI presentations tonight, lighting designer and architect Mark Major will be inaugurated as the new master of the Royal Designers. And then, according to tradition, Mark will give this year's RDI address. In a moment, I will hand over to the outgoing master, outgoing master of the Royal Designers, structural engineer and designer Tristram Carfrey, who will invite the new members of the faculty to receive their diplomas. But before I do that, I would like to thank Tristram for working with the faculty and the RSA over the past two years. We gratefully acknowledge the role of the RDI, RDI Master and would also like to thank the Royal Designers for their ongoing commitment to the RSA. Many RDIs have established projects, for example, with the family of RSA Academies. Marion Dukar's RDI finally kindly shared her communication design insights and wonderful illustrations with a class of Year 4 pupils and their teachers at Abbey Wood First School in Redditch. Marion supported the class with their social action campaign to improve road safety following a rise in accidents close to the school. RSA Academies would like to support further inspiring partnerships between RDIs and young people over the forthcoming year to inspire designers of the future and introduce pu pupils to how design can help bring about social progress. So now, I'll hand over to Tristram. Good evening, everybody, and Matthew, thank you for your very warm welcome, and congratulations in particular to the Student Design Award winners, and to all the ones who aren't present, as well as the ones who are, but thank you very much. So before we welcome the new Royal Designers for 2019, I'd just like us to spend a minute remembering those Royal Designers who've passed away over the last two years. Ralph Coltai, RDI, theatre designer, Wendy Ramshaw, RDI, jewellery designer. Raymond Wheeler, RDI, aeronautical designer. Wim Kroll, honorary RDI, graphic designer. Ingo Mara, honorary RDI, lighting designer. And Ted Cullinan, RDI, architect. And now it's my great pleasure to announce the new Royal Designers for 2019. First, we have Kim Avella, RDI. Educated at the Winchester School of Art and the Royal College of Art, Kim Avella has worked at the forefront of fashion for the last 20 years. She's been design director of textiles for three of the most prestigious global design companies, Gucci, Yves Saint Laurent, and Alexander McQueen. Kim's work embraces the vast diversity and versatility of design possibilities. She operates at the very pinnacle of the fashion textiles market, 
Her work profoundly influences the fashion industry globally. In creating fabric concepts and pushing the boundaries of fabric research, Kim contributes to the groundbreaking work of each fashion house. Texture, colour, weight, pattern, materials, and the inexorable evolution of technology within these worlds are just part of the palette with which Kim creates her spectacular designs each season. Kim is deeply involved with all creative aspects of each collection. Her work places an emphasis on modern fabric innovation, collaborating with and employing the skills of leading creative weavers, mills, printers and suppliers in Britain, Europe and Japan. Recently, Kim has collaborated with Google Arts and Culture to create The Craftsmanship of Alexander McQueen, a virtual reality story directed at inspiring students globally. She has developed a significant creative contribution within the new exhibition space of the flagship McQueen store in London's Old Bond Street that hosts an innovative programme of shows, talks and events. Kim has a keen interest in promoting and facilitating tomorrow's textile and fashion designers. Whilst at Yves Saint Laurent, she was senior weave tutor at the Royal College of Art. She currently selects and mentors emerging new talent for the Alexander McQueen textile graduate trainee and student internship programmes enabling young designers to develop and flourish. And she is a senior member of the selection panel for the annual Alexander McQueen Scholarship at Central St. Martins. Kim is a leading force in the future of sustainable textile design. She's been a key contributor to the Caring Sustainability Strategy, and in a world where reducing resource consumption is a necessity, the group is working to develop more sustainable and responsible textiles while preserving traditional crafts and skills. Kim. The talent and hard work that we see in your designs offers an inspiring testimony to the enduring beauty and inspiration of textiles, and we welcome you warmly as a royal designer. Please. Our next um, Royal Designer for 2019 is Paulie Constable. A rich journey has taken Paulie Constable to where she is today, widely acknowledged as one of Britain's most creative and accomplished theatre lighting designers. While reading English at the University of London, Paulie chanced upon the world of lighting design. One summer, she was sharing a flat with a stage manager, who on a whim took off to Spain with her new boyfriend. Consequently, when a call came in offering a follow-spot job at the Hackney Empire, Paulie turned up in her stead and just learnt on the go. It was the start of a love affair with theatre and with lighting design. Starting in rock and roll, Paulie gradually moved to experimental and devised theatre. Currently based at the National Theatre, the Lyric Hammersphere, Hammersmith and with New Adventures, Paulie has created some of the most original and innovative lighting designs ever seen on stage for theatrical productions both in the UK and overseas. In Warhorse, for example, every space is articulated through light, every phase, every nuance, and the story is told with the shifts in illumination. The result is something incredibly textured and pictorial. 
Indeed, her lighting design has been likened to artists like Caravaggio or Vermeer. In Behind the Beautiful Forevers on the vast Olivier stage, Pauli told her story with a tangible sense of the subcontinental sun, hazy, heavy, and baking, or the still calm of moonlight. Lighting is more than technology, it's part of the fabric of storytelling. Pauli's extensive credits include award-winning productions such as Warhorse and The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, Wolf Hall, and Follies. She works in theatre, opera, and dance, collaborating with the world's top directors and artists for companies such as the National Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company, English National Opera, Glyndebourne, Welsh National Opera, Matthew Bourne, and Theatre de Complicité. A pioneer for female artists in the industry, Paulie was the first female lighting designer to light a major show at the National Theatre in 1992, and to then to win an Olivier Award for lighting design in 2005. Paulie currently leads on environmental and sustainability policies at the National Theatre, as well as on technical and design issues and on diversity. She is an ambassador and supporter of Julie's Bicycle, a London-based charity that supports the creative community in acting on climate change and environmental sustainability. Teaching annually at RADA and at Rose Bruford College, she has also lectured at the Royal Welsh College, the Royal Scottish Conservatoire, Yale Drama Department at NYU and at MediaTek in South Africa. She's encouraged the National Theatre and her fellow creatives to deliver the Design Challenge, a teaching package for sixth form technical and production students to be able to develop their own ideas and explore the world of design. Paulie is the only lighting designer in the stage top 100. She's won four Olivier Awards in the UK, two Tony Awards on Broadway. She's a fellow of Goldsmiths College, an honorary fellow of Rose Bruford College and the Central School of Speech and Drama, and has been awarded an honorary degree from the Royal Scottish Conservatoire. Paulie, we're delighted that tonight you'll become a Royal Designer for Industry, adding to these prestigious awards, and we offer you a heartfelt welcome to the faculty. Next, we have Tom Gold, RDI. Tom Gold is an award-winning Scottish cartoonist and illustrator, best known for his weekly comic strips in The Guardian and New Scientist. Tom is also a regular contributor to the New Yorker magazine, with many covers to his credit, and The New York Times. He's written and illustrated many graphic novels and comic books, and I can recommend them to you. Born in Aberdeen, Scotland, Tom studied illustration at Edinburgh College of Art and then at the Royal College of Art here. Over his years at art school, Tom slowly came to realise that telling stories with words and pictures was what interested him most. Tom's work has a unique voice, erudite, witty and intelligent. <laughs> he has the ability to capture complex ideas with economic means. His work explores contemporary society, forcing us to scrutinise ourselves and the realities that we take for granted. Sometimes poignant, often enlightening, but always, and most importantly, seriously funny. 
Tom's work with its dark humour, impeccable timing and distinctive style is artwork that many of us will be familiar with. Whether it's his award-winning graphic novels or on the pages of a national newspaper, from prestigious New Yorker magazine covers to a personally designed Coca-Cola can, you will have come across his drawings. Tom is the author of many comic books, including Goliath, which retells the famous biblical story of David and Goliath from the point of view of Goliath himself, or Moon Cop, a New York Times bestseller, where Tom finds humour and hope in his portrait of a fading utopia. In Tom's own words, partly I'm attempting to find a really efficient style which communicates ideas and stories effectively, but I want a warmth in there too. I'm interested in a kind of dry, black, bleak comedy. <laughs> Tom has also worked on numerous commercial projects, including campaigns for boots and British gas. Tom works with students and children at drawing workshops, both here and abroad. He's worked with primary care trusts, local councils and hospitals. He recently worked with the Cystic Fibrosis Unit at St Bartholomew's Hospital to capture the imagination of patients and transport them away from the hospital environment. Tom was winner of Best Humour publication at the 2018 Eisner Awards. Tom, your skills and experience will be exceptionally valuable to both the RSA and the faculty, and we welcome you warmly as a Royal Designer. Next, we have Joanna Gibbons, RDI. Joanna Gibbons has dedicated herself to the promotion of landscape design through activism, education, and professional practice. While delivering internationally recognized design and innovative thinking of the highest quality. Joe trained in landscape architecture at Edinburgh College of Art, graduating in 1983, and established her award-winning practice in 1986. In a world declaring climate emergency, ecological breakdown, and a mental health crisis, Joe has been ahead of the game, always looking for answers and delivering examples of better planning and design of our urban landscapes. Joe exhibits an extraordinary interest in many facets of landscape design. She's an expert in the history of landscape in London and can trace the development of green areas through the ages. She's a technical expert in sustainable urban drainage and wrote the handbook for Transport for London. She's an incredibly sensitive designer of community-centered, useful urban gardens, while also able to turn her hand to beautiful areas of landscape using native and historically sensitive planting. Joe's portfolio includes projects that range from strategic planning of cities to landscapes of heritage significance, green infrastructure, healthy living, and urban regeneration, through to temporary landscape installations each setting an example for a sustainable future. Throughout her 35-year career, Jo has been recognised for the highest quality, innovative and long-term landscape design solutions. Across all projects, collaborative working is central to her approach in developing meaningful landscapes through a deliberative planning process of research and engagement. Jo has won many awards for her design excellence, including the Landscape Institute President Award, the highest industry achievement awarded in the UK, 
and in 2017 was winner of the World Architecture Festival Religious Project for the New Bushy Jewish Ceremony, Cemetery, which went on to be shortlisted for the Sterling Prize, the highest architectural prize in the UK, as well as being winner of NLA London Infrastructure Award for Transport for London's Sustainable Drainage Systems Guide. Joe's Making Space in Dalston project has been recognised internationally as an exemplar of public realm design, action research and grassroots neighbourhood planning. In 2016, Joe established Landscape Learn, a social enterprise programme of tutorials, field trips and essays available to students, professionals and communities for an agile, process-driven and collaborative method of learning. Joe is a collaborative partner of Urban Mind, a cross-disciplinary research project with King's College London and Nomad Projects, exploring how the urban environment affects mental well-being. Having taught widely, she's been an external examiner at Edinburgh College of Art and has acted as a specialist external course assessor for the University of Greenwich. She is actively engaged in several design advisory roles. And Joe was recently made an honorary research fellow at Birkbeck University of London. Joanna. We warmly welcome you as a remarkable, multifaceted and talented landscaper to the Faculty of Royal Designers. Adam Lowe, RDI. Adam Lowe is the pioneer of creating and replicating fine art using advanced digital techniques and combining them with the skills and intricacies of fine art and craft. Without his work, many of the world's masterpieces risk being lost forever. Adam trained in fine art at the Ruskin School of Drawing in Oxford and in painting at the RCA London. Adam worked as an artist throughout the 80s and 90s, painting on canvas and board, but also exploring photography. His fascination with how things transform led to a series of exhibitions at the Pomeroy Purdy Gallery in London's Bankside. But it was a conversation in London with a Spanish hyper-realist painter and engineer, Manuel Franquello, that started a new chapter for Adam. Manuel's main concern had been the rematerialization of objects in paint. After that initial encounter, Adam moved to Madrid in 2000, and together with Manuel, Factum Art, Latin for making things, was created. Based in Madrid, Milan, and London, Factum Arte, I suspect it should be, consists of a diverse collaboration of artists, technicians, and conservators dedicated to digital mediation for both the production of artworks for contemporary artists, such as Anish Kapoor, Marina Abramovich, Gillian Waring and Grayson Perry, but also for the recreation of past masters. For recreating artworks, Adam Emanuel invented the Lucida 3D laser scanner, which is able to capture high-resolution images of 3D surfaces without causing damage, describing the minute detail of a brushstroke and the depth of paint without even touching the canvas. Van Gogh's Six Sunflowers and a Vase which was destroyed by fire, has recently been recreated by Adam. 
A photograph of the painting showing the composition and striking colours of the original allowed Adam, using data from all the other existing sunflower paintings by Van Gogh and the painting skills of Factum Arte artists to replicate the lost land masterpiece. Adam made his reputation with a full-size replica of Veronese's wedding at Cana, which Napoleon had ripped from the refectory wall of San Giorgio Maggiore in Venice. The wall remained bare until Adam installed his copy as an exact replica in place of the original. Other major projects include the recreation of Tutankhamun's tomb in Luxor, seriously damaged by tourism, and the replication of Caravaggio's nativity with St. Francis and St. Lawrence, which was stolen from the oratory of St. Lawrence in Palermo. Adam's work provides an opportunity to view lost or ravaged cultural icons in their original spaces, giving the observer a far richer and more authentic experience than in the crowded global museums that contain the originals. Adam maintains that through education, tourism can become a positive force in the preservation of our past. In his work scanning the tomb of Seti I in Egypt, Adam transferred vital skills, technologies and money to the local community. Adam, you are a unique and special addition to our Faculty of Royal Designers. We look forward to your creative contribution and welcome you as an RDI. Our next Royal Designer is Michael Marriott, RDI. Michael Marriott's work is characterised by a pared-back functionalism and a supremely honest approach to materials, often juxtaposed in ways that are as much thought-provoking as pleasing to the eye. He brought ideas of reuse and sustainability to industrial design before the rest of the world became interested. Born in London, Michael studied furniture design first at the London College of Furniture and then at the Royal College of Art. On graduating in 1993, he set up his own design studio and began to design and create household items and furniture, often using ordinary components like wing nuts and plastic buckets. He combined these with reclaimed and found materials, ranging from oak to simple ply and pegboard. Of his own work, Michael says, if my objects speak, I think it is more likely a whisper or a hum. On the whole, I'm not so interested in objects that shout. It seems like there's too much shouting going on in this world. Though Michael's furniture design forms the core of his practice, he also includes exhibition, product, and interior design projects. In all his varied practice, there is a common thread throughout, which is a search for the elemental nature of the thing in hand. As both designer and curator, He's put together exhibitions at the Jeffrey Museum, London's Design Museum, and the Camden Arts Centre. Michael is a rare type of designer. He starts from a different place. He says, objects that last longest are typically the ones with higher degrees of rightness in them. So we need to try to understand what makes things right so that we can do less wrong. In this sense, he is acutely aware of our precarious planetary state, 
but still manages to make arresting objects. His approach is one that we can all learn from. Michael's work is highly influential and fostered an approach that values modesty and directness over flamboyancy, publicity and financial gain. Since his graduation, Michael has worked consistently in the same vein with children, students and community groups globally. He encourages those he works with to see that, with a few simple tools and a sharp eye, they too are capable of exerting control over their condition and their environment. His work with communities in the tsunami-affected areas of Japan pushed the logic of material use to its limits. Michael's ever-curious, ever-investigative mind is constantly seeking out new materials, new ways to assemble things, new ways to use existing things, and a new way of thinking about the world we inhabit. Michael, we would be delighted if you could also teach us how to interpret and improve the world of the raw designers. And we offer you a warm welcome to the faculty. And the last of our Royal Designers this evening is Alora Hardy, Honorary RDI. Alora Hardy is leading the world in designing buildings from completely renewable resources. Buildings that are so naturally beautiful that they promote peace and well-being in everyone that experiences them. Brought up in Bali, she graduated from the School of Museum of Fine Arts at Tufts University with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in 2004. Elora spent her 20s in New York creating fabric prints for, for Donna Karen, but her tropical island childhood upbringing stayed with her. In Elora's words, I realised I wanted to explore what I'd seen as a child and do something sustainable. Exactly how became clear in 2008 when her father and stepmother opened the Green School, a Balinese academy whose structures introduced her to the work of some of the artisans whom she now collaborates with. Elora now leads Ibuku, a pioneering firm creating bespoke bamboo homes in her native Bali. The team she leads has built over 90 bamboo structures in nine years. Elora works by creating scale models for her buildings using slivers of her chosen material, bamboo. Even the structural engineering is largely performed by pulling and pushing these models to find out how they behave. The buildings themselves are simply scaled up versions of her intricate models. The mostly open air homes read like high end tree houses, with dramatically sloping, usually petal shaped roofs, elaborate joinery, and light on the land foundations. Bamboo is a super sustainable material. A shoot can become a useful structural column within five years that successfully stores carbon from the atmosphere, and it is a uniquely efficient and responsible resource. Elora's structures are almost entirely hand-built, providing jobs for hundreds of local artisans and craftspeople. The elevation of bamboo as a viable building material in Indonesia and internationally is a significant legacy of Elora's work. Elora has designed schools in New Zealand, Mexico and South Africa. Motivated by a desire to show students that abundance and hope is possible for a generation facing a rapidly uncertain future, 
Elora designed spaces where young people feel connected to the landscape as they move through campus. They feel connected to one another and ultimately re-establish themselves within nature. Elora was named an Architectural Digest Innovator in 2013 for her eco-friendly designs. And her 2015 TED Talk has enjoyed over 4.2 million views, making it the second most watched TED Talk on architecture. Her work was most recently exhibited at the V&A here in London, the Bamboo Fruit Blueprint, earlier this year. Unfortunately, Elora is unable to attend, join us this evening because she's attending her father's 70th birthday. But I'm delighted that Neil Thomas, RDI, who's worked closely with Elora, is here to receive this award on her behalf. Thank you, Matthew. And once again, congratulations to all our new Royal Designers. So my thrilling two years as Master of the Royal Designers has now come to an end. I've thoroughly enjoyed my time getting to know you all better and establishing our new association. From our newfound independence, I hope we can now forge a better and stronger relationship with the RSA, including next year holding a design day here at the RSA on Thursday evening and Friday the 18th of September as part of the London Design Festival 2020. I'd like to thank the committee of Margaret Calvert, Morog Myerscough, and Robin Levine for their tremendous support over the last couple of years. And most particularly, the wonderful Amy Lewis, who has, with immense dedication, single-handedly and magnificently administered the faculty and our new association. And now it gives me great pleasure to hand over to Mark Major, RDI, as our new master. Mark is a brilliant architectural lighting designer, one of our newer design disciplines. Mark has also served on our committee for many years, including for my predecessor, Betty. And I know that the faculty will benefit hugely from this appointment because I've seen Mark in action. And after receiving the master's medal, Mark will regale us with his inaugural address. So, Mark Major, please step forward. <laughs> it's got a very cunning hook that stops it falling off. Well, gosh, <laughs> what, can I, what can I say? It's a, a real honor to be here and uh, standing in front of you as the new master of the uh, Faculty of Royal Designers and uh, our new association. And uh, I'm more than, uh, more than aware of the uh, roll call of previous incumbents of this post, uh, some of whom are in the audience. So uh, um, 
So I, I, I must be really honest, I face both the task of being master and giving this talk with uh, a little trepidation, so be, uh, be kind. Um, I want to talk a, a little bit about uh, my work, uh, particularly my work in public space. Um, all will become clear as I proceed. Um, but I also feel uh, that it's very important that I say a little bit about uh, my approach and my understanding of what it means to become master and uh, how I can perhaps help the faculty and the association moving forward in the next two years, particularly in respect of three lessons that I've learnt as a lighting designer over the years. Anyway, uh, more, more of that later. But I want to start by, in a way, talking just a little about being an RDI, because I haven't been an RDI for very long. Uh, I was made a, a raw designer in 2012, so I'm relatively new. And I, I, I'm looking to our new RDIs, and, you know, Nat, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful evening, and you've, you know, sort of been celebrated, and then you're probably thinking, now what? <laughs> and uh, it, it takes a little while to realise that what the RDIs are, are this incredibly quirky group of individual designers, talented designers that have been sort of thrown together by receiving an honour. It wasn't an honour that any of us ever probably asked for, but we were grateful to receive it because it's very nice to be applauded and uh, patted on the back by your peers. Um, but I think one of the great things that I've discovered about being an RDI, I almost feel like I'm advising you here, but uh, about being an RDI, is that, you know, firstly, you make a lot of friends amongst other designers. Secondly, you can share some terrific ideas and learn new things that you never uh, would have imagined learning. But most of all, I think it sort of gives you an opportunity to put something back in. And in your own work, and we've heard this this evening, you know, you're already putting a lot in. Um, but we hope that through the, uh, the work of the faculty and the association going forward, that uh, you, you, know, you can sort of contribute uh, to uh, our work. Uh, some of which Matthew described very well uh, this evening, particularly in terms of educational outreach. Um, you can contribute to our work and uh, help us uh, move forward. You see, I feel very strongly that uh, we, we, we live in very difficult times, you know, with a declared climate uh, uh, emergency, um, food security issues, water scarcity, ageing population you know, issues to do with, you know, technology and work. I mean, all sorts of things that we have to deal with. And it's very, very important that we as RDIs reach out and try and address uh, some of those issues going into the future. Anyway, I'm going to weave a little bit about being an RDI into my talk, but I want to now start um, talking about uh, my passion, which is not only light, but is also darkness. Um, I trained as uh, an architect, as uh, Tristram uh, so kindly uh, introduced. And um, I, um, I really wanted to be a, a painter, don't we all? Um, but so it may not come as a surprise that I ended up sort of in a way painting with light, but uh, in an architectural environment within the built environment. And I've, I've started with this uh, slide of natural light, because when, I, when I'm teaching or talking to students or young lighting designers, I always say that most of what we need to learn about light, we can learn from observing what goes on in the natural world. It changes, it changes colour and texture, it has movement, you know, natural light is beautiful, and also, rather wonderfully, it's free. 
unlike the light that I uh, deal with, which is artificial light. But it occurred to me, given that I'd understood these properties of natural light, I sort of wondered why, you know, traditionally, uh, particularly when I came into lighting design in the, uh, the early 1980s, um, uh, why uh, the artificially lit world was so flat, boring, lifeless, and generally lacking in joy, particularly in public space. And it's not that I felt that we should necessarily emulate or copy uh, the natural world, but I felt very strongly that there were things that we could learn from nature that we could perhaps bring to the party after dark. In talking about darkness, I realized that I couldn't really talk about, think about, or work with light without engaging with its counterpart, darkness. I mean, it's not really ever truly dark. Uh, there's always a bit of moonlight, a bit of starlight, stray artificial light, too much stray artificial light in quite a lot of places, too much of uh, the, uh, the time. Um, but what intrigued me about darkness is, you know, since Edison, or was it Swan, uh, gave us the benefits of electric light, we've sort of filled the world with it. We've sort of got absolutely mad for it. And we've forgotten the qualities of the night, the sort of visual silence, privacy. You know, concealment isn't always a bad thing. And so I've always been very interested in this notion of the qualities of the night, rather than extending the day, celebrating the, um, uh, our world after dark. Now, what is it that I do? Um, I think it's quite easy to explain with these uh, two slides. This is the uh, new gas holder triplets at King's Cross by uh, Wilkinson Air uh, Architects, a fantastic uh, project. And what we do, um, I think sometimes lighting is a bit of a broken word. You know, you tend to talk about lighting and people think about, you know, light bulbs, lux levels and technology. Whereas actually what we think about is, you know, how do we create an experience after dark for people? How to experience the built environment and uh, architecture. So with the flick of a switch or the lifting of a dimmer, we can totally transform um, architecture into something different uh, after dark. It, it, it provides a new identity a reinterpretation, a new experience for people after dark rather than necessarily what they see by day. Now, I've been very uh, grateful and very lucky over the years to work on a wide range of very exciting projects, ranging from well-known expo buildings to... Oh, sorry, I went backwards. To relighting the interior of St Paul's Cathedral. I mean, that's a privilege that I never probably would have had as an architect if I'd stayed in architecture. Lighting airports in many parts of the world. I spent eight years working on the public lighting for Terminal 5 with our team. Uh, lighting bridges. Unfortunately, the maintenance on this one isn't so good, but I'm assured by the new Illuminated River Foundation they're about to restore it to its original glory. That's the one problem with lighting design. It's very ephemeral. Um, but we also, you know, I've been privileged to work on a large number of community projects such as JW3 in North London, a couple of Maggie centres, you know, cancer care centres. So it's not just big stuff that we do. Um, we get involved in all sorts. And sometimes we get asked to do really kind of surprising projects. I mean, this, is a, this was a deserted um, a coking plant in the Ruhr Valley that we were invited, uh, well, we actually won an international competition to transform it into a nocturnal park for the local community, um, you know, which is an amazing opportunity to have been able to work on.
But the bit that really interests me these days, I'm not saying I'm not interested in any of those projects, but the bit that really interests me these days is the work that we're doing in public space. I think it's very important, and I feel very sort of passionate and dedicated about it. Um, we have a sort of, um, over the years, we've done a large number of lighting master plans, strategies, call them what you wish, for city centres, uh, particularly uh, in places in the United Kingdom, places like Derby, Coventry, bits of London like Croydon, often tough places where antisocial behaviour and you know, an ailing nighttime economy is part of our brief. And here we look at issues such as safety, security, accessibility, wayfinding, legibility, all sorts of issues, and all through consultation with local communities. And sometimes our work extends to sort of doing this for private developers, uh, you know, working on projects like Battersea Power Station or Elephant Park, uh, both of which are underway, or King's Cross, where we've been involved since 2006. And whilst these are private developments, they are such large chunks of a city that uh, they, uh, we have to sort of knit the, the lighting back into the local communities, as well as, in a way, make the experience of these spaces really something uh, to enjoy. And our most uh, recently completed strategy in this area is a lighting vision for the City of London within the boundaries of uh, the corporation. And uh, this was a really extraordinary opportunity, probably regarded now as one of the most sort of um, uh, thorough and uh, um, most uh, consolidated uh, strategic lighting plans currently within, uh, within London. Uh, and again, subject to incredible level of consultation, but a holistic approach before we turn, you know, the City of London rolled out its LED lighting program throughout its streets. It took the time to develop a strategy with us um, in order to take um, the city forward on every level, with residents, with cultural issues, with, with all sorts. Now, like all emerging professions, and I consider myself as having, despite having worked for 30 years in architectural lighting, as still being part of very much an emerging professional and emerging discipline, we have had to find values by which we can work. Um, now, some of these will be already uh, familiar uh, to uh, many people in this room. There's nothing unique about the values that uh, uh, we, uh, we, we employ, but there's three that I want to, in the second half of my talk, dwell on tonight, and I want to sort of connect these uh, to the future of uh, the RDI uh, Association. Um, and those three that I'm going to talk about are these. So, retain as well as add. When I start into a lighting project, I imagine a black canvas. I start with darkness and I begin to add light, but only just as much light as I want to add. But as well as adding light, I try and retain darkness. It, not always, not everywhere. But I want to give you an example of um, uh, part of the project that we did in Derby uh, with the local community. Uh, we do a lot of demonstration projects uh, with communities and uh, we do night walks and all sorts of ways of sort of helping people engage with uh, public lighting uh, within their uh, cities. And as part of this demonstration project, having invited everybody along, we took a small public square by the museum that was a little unloved and uh, we temporarily recreated its rather miserable lighting scheme. Um, uh, and that pretty much is sort of uh, ha how, how it was lit uh, at uh, the time. 
And we said, well, if you don't do that, and in fact, if we almost take most of that away, and we simply light some of the objects, leave some areas, you know, in a, with a bit of contrast, but light some of the objects, such as this beautiful sculptural mature tree, the statue, we can actually make the space more legible, more enjoyable. It becomes an altogether better space. And, you know, the people who were there were, this is this amazing. And it actually, it, it didn't take a lot. It was very few light fittings and very little cost. So we don't, not only added light, but we took away things to sort of retain uh, a little bit more darkness. And people even said, well, I I didn't, I've never really noticed that statue, and I, I certainly have never noticed the tree. You see, I think this business of addition is a problem. Everybody is celebrating the fact that LED is low energy, you know, LED light sources are low energy and long life. But it doesn't mean, seem to mean that we're using less light. We seem to be saying, thanks for the energy saving, let's use even more. And I think that is going to be a massive problem. Now, it's a little unfair of me to show an image of Coventry Street because it is sort of part of Theatreland, but it's very indicative of this sort of piecemeal visual noise that is breaking out in all our cities uh, and other cities uh, around the world. And there's a time and a place for it in places like Piccadilly Circus and Leicester Square, as I say, maybe the connections between. But this additive nature of light can be a problem. Um, and I hope you can just about see this because obviously it's a deliberately dark photograph. Um, but there are places in our cities that obviously darkness still reigns supreme. And a little bit like we introduced sort of landscape into cities in the sort of uh, the 17th and 18th century, you know, as the lungs of the city. I feel very strongly that we should be not only retaining darkness, but looking for opportunities to quieten things down. So we retain as well as add. Now, what does retain as well as add mean in terms of moving forward with the RDIs? What lesson can I possibly bring from what I've learned in lighting design to the association? I think what it is is that we know that we have to add more disciplines to our association. I'm part of an emerging discipline, and there are many emerging disciplines in the field of digital design, in social design, in sustainable design, in many, many different important areas. But the problem with emerging disciplines, as I know, is that demonstrating sustained excellence over takes time. So we have to be very careful and also make sure that we retain our values within the association, these values that we've upheld for 80 years of sustained excellence. So retaining as well as adding. Now, my second theme is to talk about achieving the right balance. And you'll be relieved to hear I'm not going to say the balance between light and darkness. What I'm actually going to talk about, which very much drives uh, my work in uh, working in public space, um, is the balance between the social and economic benefits that artificial lighting brings to us as a society that have to be very carefully balanced um, with the environmental consequences of using what is effectively an industrial product, artificial light. I mean, light has this social... It's an amazing social tool, artificial lighting. It brings us uh, together. And there's fantastic work going on, particularly at the LSE at the moment, through Dr. Don Slater, uh, his configuring uh, light um, uh, group, uh, that is doing uh, fantastic work uh, with the uh, sociology uh, of uh, light within our cities. And um, 
We also know that the uh, economic uh, importance of light, the nighttime economy, is incredibly important. You know, the nighttime economy in the UK is estimated at around about 80 billion pounds per annum. I mean, you can do election pledges for that sort of uh, money. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's therefore, lighting plays a very important role. But the recent research carried out at the GLA uh, by Amy LeMay, uh, the night czar, she apparently prefers to be called the night czar, not the nightmare, and we can understand why. Um, but they've done a study of six to, uh, six to six, and they found out these incredible facts. You know, 1.6 million people in London during the night, of which 200, nearly 200,000 alone, are working in healthcare. I mean, these are extraordinary statistics. And to me, it demonstrates just how important our lit environment is and just how important this work in public space after dark is for our society. But we must be careful. We have to think about energy use, light pollution, you know, not only blocking out the view of the stars, but also coming through our bedroom windows if we live near new LED streetlights. Um, and I worry a lot about this issue, over-illumination, and I'm not picking on Gap. God forbid. But no one asked Gap to light the tree. And these, th this is a problem uh, for our society. And, of course, we don't just sort of impact ourselves and our society, but we also impact creatures that we share this earth with. Uh, there was an interesting article in The Guardian just a few days ago about the uh, impact of artificial light on insect populations. And this is a growing area of concern. But my big worry is that, so this is a, an image obviously from the, uh, the, um, the, the International Space Station of the Earth at night. My big worry is if this is what it looks like with the developed nations and what we've done with artificial lighting over the years, once the developing nations get to the same degree, what is the Earth going to, what's that image going from space going to be like? And there's a sort of conundrum here because actually, as usual, what we've almost got too much of, some people in the world don't have enough of, and that is artificial light. It's a serious problem in emerging uh, and developing countries, such as Mali. This is the work of Matteo Ferroni, who um, came up with an ingenious system of uh, providing light uh, within sort of uh, different parts of uh, Mali from a portable uh, and self-generating uh, system. Um, and these are areas that suffer from light poverty, so, you know, what we have, other, and uh, sort of, you know, I'm talking about darkness and less light and all of these things, other people obviously need something different. So how do we achieve the right balance uh, within the RDI, association, uh, RDI association? Well, I think the balance that I'm looking for, or be looking for in the next two years, is we're all doing hard work in the right direction as RDIs, moving in all sorts of new and interesting directions. There are many RDIs doing fantastic work uh, in the environment uh, with all sorts of uh, sustainable objectives. And, but we want the association to do more in that area, to become part of that debate, not only through our educational program, but also through engaging not only with the RSA, but other groups and uh, the, wider design, uh, um, the wider design society uh, in order to, um, to do this. Um, and what we've got to do is achieve the right balance between our own work and what we put back in through the RDI Association. And last, and absolutely by no means least, 
I just want to finish on the title of my talk, which is Don't Forget the Magic. I've talked about some fairly serious issues tonight, and I probably seem a bit po-faced as a result. Um, but uh, it's very important that as designers, um, we don't forget the magic. I mean, I come back to the issue of natural light where I started. Um, we're all aware of the sort of the coincidence of random events of weather, the position of the sun, time of the day, and we all enjoy a wonderful dawn, a fantastic sunset, a brilliant rainbow. I mean, I defy anybody not to say, look, it's a rainbow. <laughs> if you're really lucky, an aurora. Um, but uh, we have to go a little bit further afield uh, to see that. And certainly in my own work, regardless of where I'm working, I've always tried to, you know, have a little bit of magic, whether it's the sort of reinterpretation of a beautiful 13th century, 102-metre-high tower in Utrecht. The photographer couldn't sort of get it all in, but trust me, it's beautiful. Walking on darkness on John Pawson RDI's wonderful bridge, the Sackler Crossing, uh, walking over water on a path of darkness between light. It's a magical experience. Or maybe simply wandering down the boulevard in uh, the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, a project we did with James Corner Field Operations, through dappled light. You know, there's no British standard for dappled light, I can assure you. But it feels safe, it feels wonderful, and people feel happy. And we've heard people say in that environment, wow, this is magical. So don't forget the magic. We've seen some wonderful work this evening from our new RDIs, and we all understand why you're here. And what we've seen in your work is, beyond anything else, some magic, some true magic. And in a way, we sort of, uh, we feel very strongly that uh, by asking you to join us uh, as part of our association and as part of our faculty, um, as you haven't forgotten the magic, neither have we. Thank you very much. That was brilliant, and I am not going to lower the tone by telling you my favourite joke, which is about the man who goes to the doctor and says, Doctor, Doctor, you need to help me. I think I'm a moth. And the doctor says, you shouldn't be here. You need a psychiatrist. Why did you come here? And the man says, because your light was on. Um, <laughs> well, at least Mark laughed. <laughs> um, so thank you, Mark. Uh, thank you. I'll never live that down. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Tristram. And congratulations to the new um, RDIs. Um, if you uh, are uh, one of the new raw designers, please remain behind briefly to assemble for a photograph. Please, everybody else, go down to Raw Smells uh, on minus one and minus two uh, for drinks and the showcase. Um, and all of you who are invited to uh, dinner, please make your way back to this room, which will be transformed by that time when dinner uh, is announced slightly later. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.